Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritas, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for a parent or your partner or maybe a child with special needs? Well, we're here to help. Each week we hear from professionals in the field of aging and people like you, caregivers sharing their stories and tips for staying sane. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. I last spoke with today's guest in January of 2016. At the time, Hillary Clinton was the Democratic frontrunner in the presidential campaign, and Donald Trump led the pack of 12 Republicans still in the race. When the candidates talked about caregiving at all, it was usually in the context of child care. But the fact that caregiving even came up on the campaign trail was a clear sign that the issue could no longer be ignored. Well, we all know how the election turned out. As for the future of care, right now, the nation's largest source of support for long-term in-home care, Medicaid, faces proposed combined cuts of $1.4 trillion over the next 10 years. But grassroots activists and some progressive legislators are pushing back, demanding investment in creating the care that America needs. Joining me once again to talk strategy in the era of Trump is Kevin Simowitz, Kevin is the political director of Caring Across Generations, a national campaign working to bring America's long-term care system into the 21st century. Kevin joined us from Washington, D.C. Kevin, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me back. It's nice to talk with you again. So for listeners who don't know, tell us about Caring Across Generations and how the work gets done. Sure. Caring Across is a campaign working to transform the way that we care in this country. It's the small little tasks that we should be done in the next couple of weeks or so, but <laughs> it's, it's a, a massive challenge when we say that we want, we want to transform the way that we care. And the way that we talk about this at Carry Across is that people all across the country are living longer and that lots of people are turning 65 every eight seconds. Someone in the country turns 65 years old, so that's about 10,000 people each year. And all the listeners to this podcast know that care is expensive, and it's getting increasingly expensive, especially care that's provided in a facility or in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of it being expensive, we also hear from people all the time that if they had their choice, they'd rather receive care in their homes and their communities where they're a bit more comfortable. So our campaign is built around the idea that we can support families and family caregivers by making sure that they have access to all the resources that they need, that we can support people in the paid care workforce, so paid caregivers, make sure that they earn a fair wage and have access to workforce development, and also that we can support aging adults in the country, so they have access to the care that they need where they want to receive it, uh, and that the determining factor in whether or not people are able to receive that care is just how much money were you able to squirrel away over the course of your life. And as we record this, the Senate is about to take a procedural vote and start debate or not on either repealing the Affordable Care Act with without a replacement plan or repealing and replacing the ACA with a health care bill that no one really has any idea of what's in it. So what are you doing in Washington right now? And how has 
carrying across generations changed its strategy given the current climate? It's a great question. I keep, as I sort of refresh news this morning, a couple <laughs> hours out of the boat, uh, a vote on a, a motion to proceed, I keep flashing back to my driver's ed instructor, really just drilling over and over again the idea that you don't press on the gas pedal until you know exactly what's in front of you. And if you can't tell, you're supposed to stay on the brake. Seems like particularly useful advice for the U.S. Senate today to vote on a motion to proceed when we're not sure what we're proceeding to seems particularly perilous, especially when so many people's lives will be on the line. It's truly a life or death issue. And for Carrie Across and for our members across the country, Obviously, for many people, the election results were shocking, and then the policy outcomes as a result of those election results have really changed a lot of the plans of what felt politically possible. Mm-hmm. And so in response to these, you know, to, to what is an attack on, you know, you're attacking Medicaid, you're attacking long-term care and home care, and you're attacking the people who receive it, and you're attacking the people who provide it. Um, and there's not really a, a particularly fun or pleasant way to dress that up. And so, of course, Carrier Cross members across the country have responded to these attacks on the care that they depend upon by really stepping up and joining the massive resistance across the country of people who are calling their legislators at least once a day, if not more, who are showing up to actions at their offices. A couple of our members participated in a hearing here in Washington, D.C. to talk about what repealing the Affordable Care Act would mean in their lives. Mm-hmm. Every piece, you know, every piece of, of action and activism across the country right now, I think, is shaped by a belief that being able to share what the impact of this legislation will be on families and communities might break through to a few of the deciding votes. Um, and I think that the, I mean, last week or the week before his failure of the bill to advance just entirely a testament to people in motion across the country saying this is not what we need. Um, And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't also say some of the leadership from, you know, there are thousands of people taking, tens of thousands of people taking action every day on this. And the the leadership of groups like ADAPT in particular, I think for those of us who followed, has been really inspiring in their use of direct action to really call the question on key legislators across the country who have a vote coming up on whether or not they're going to vote to take away life or death services uh, for people in their district and in their state, like really set the bar high um, for mm-hmm. what people have energy and willingness to do right now. What was the name of that organization? ADAPT. ADAPT. Um, they, they are, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. a disability rights group who's been doing work like this for, I, I think, two decades or so. I might be wrong about Mm -hmm. how long they've been doing this work, but I think real leaders in this most recent round of attempts to appeal the Affordable Care Act um, and being clear that that we have a fight on our hands. The fight is not a a policy fight or a swapping back and forth of white papers. uh, But to really demonstrate demonstrate the, the incredibly stark and dangerous effect that repealing the Affordable Care Act would have on families and communities. Mm-hmm. It really feels like there's no room for niceties now. And there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no room for sort of milk toast response and politics as usual or reframing old arguments with different language. It really feels like some, something very different is called for now, and it's great to see the grassroots stepping up. I mean, not, not to go too far down the process, the process point, but 
you know, to have this vote without ever calling an expert in the Senate to, ahead of today's vote, right. without ever having a hearing where people come. Yeah, I think that I think this should not just set off alarm bells about what this means for process moving forward in the Senate. But I, I think to your point, it really underscores like this isn't this isn't about having an honest debate, at least from the people who are trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act and uh, the need to respond in a way that it accurately summarizes what the effect of this vote would be is incumbent upon carrying across and our partners in the movement. And I, I feel very humbled to be a part of that resistance happening across the country. Mm-hmm. So you live in Maine, and you're in Washington now. How long are you going to be in D.C., and what are you going to be doing when you're in D.C. this week, or for however long you're going to be there? Uh, silly as it might seem, I'm actually only here for the day. Uh, so oh, wow. I came this morning. I'm heading back tonight, which is not incredibly uncommon for me in mm-hmm. my schedule. Part of working remotely means that sometimes I come to D.C. or to New York for a day. Mm-hmm. And today I'm meeting with some of the other members of the Caring Across team to talk a little bit about what we do next in response to the attacks on the Affordable Care Act and on Medicaid and people who rely on those uh, for their day-to-day support and caregiving needs, Mm -hmm. and also talking with a couple other partners about how we uh, start to think about our 2018 electoral work across the country Mm -hmm. and think a little bit about where and how care might show up in the next election cycle. Mm -hmm. And what are you anticipating? I mean, take us behind the scenes. What can listeners know about your process that, that would be helpful? When I've been thinking about it, I've been interested in in looking back a little bit and thinking about, you know, in 2012, 2014 even, there weren't really candidates running on or campaigning on care the way that we talk about it. And I'm sure that if someone listening knows that there was, they're going to email and say, how did you not know about this person? And that's great. I would love to learn about the people who were running on care in 2014. But it certainly didn't feel, it didn't feel like, kind of a a top-line issue. And then in 2016, of course, the presidential campaign incorporated at least policies around long-term care and elder care in a way that they hadn't before. Right. And Secretary Clinton certainly, as, as you and I talked about before when we spoke, you know, certainly incorporated that into a number of not just policy papers, but also public addresses. Yeah. And so as we As we think about 2018, there are now a number of legislators in a number of states who have worked on, often in conjunction with a Caring Across Generations field partner, worked on a piece of policy around long-term care or elder care at the state level, Mm -hmm. and are now looking for ways to, as all legislators do, to tell the story of what they've done and what they've worked on to their constituents as they think about re-election. And so I think that we're going to have candidates by virtue of the fact that more and more of them have been working on care as elected officials, talking about this on the campaign trail. And I think that that is, that is going to be true at the municipal level, at the state legislative level, and I think even, too, at the gubernatorial level in a number of states where we're working, mm-hmm. where I think when, you, when we combine the changing demographics in the state and, frankly, the need to tell a story about how you're going to work on behalf of a, an increasingly older population, mm-hmm. combined with, well, what did you do when you were an elected official? Did you ever get anything done? Right. A couple of the things that I worked on and got done. I think we're going to see lots of opportunities to have conversations about not just care in general, but like the specifics of what do we need and how are we going to get there. And so the conversations that I am having today and have been having and 
I suspect we'll probably make a part of my daily routine between now and November 2018 will be what do groups on the outside do to first really tell the story about what we need on care and when we're not getting answers on that question from people who are running for office, what are the tactics that we can use to help make sure that they're answering? Mm -hmm. So when candidates are especially I'm thinking about primaries right now mm-hmm. when candidates are in a primary and trying to prove that they're like in a democratic primary, maybe more progressive than one another or jostle for space and in an increasingly crowded field is care. One of the issues that allows someone to differentiate them yeah. from the competition. Separate from the past. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Can, you know, can we get there and throw some questions into the mix and can candidates who want endorsements, you know, should we be including questions about, care and long-term care alongside minimum wage and tax and revenue questions, like where should care show up? So thinking about the full range of things that we do to get answers to our questions. And then, of course, where all elected officials are concerned, making sure we've got a plan to hold them accountable to throughout the campaign and into elected office. Mm-hmm. It seems like single payer actually might have a chance now. Obviously, we're dealing with this huge magilla of repeal and replace or make, <laughs> repeal and don't replace, whatever. But once we get past that, I personally think that single payer is looking better and better. And I know that the Medicare for All health plan, it hasn't gone anywhere, but I, I know that it has, what, 112 co-sponsors in the house. It just seems like this is the perfect time to push it. I my takeaway from all of this, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in the the intricacies of who's the next person to sign on, when does that get moved? But I will say what what has just really um, set off the light in my head and been super exciting to see is that I think the the single payer Medicare for all or even the Medicaid for all conversations are all rooted in this idea that. We don't just want to be against something. We want to be for something that speaks to what what we believe in and what our families and our communities need. Mm-hmm. And that shift and pivot is one that I think at the grassroots level, people have been crying out for, demanding, encouraging for about as long as I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. I've never heard someone suggest like, you know, what we need is a more milk toast vision. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, we, we should we should really bring it down and, and just talk in banal terms. But oh. I think now that we're we're seeing, you know, so we've always heard in community meetings and door to door conversations. I wish more elected officials understood what life was like and that their policies actually made it seem like they grasped mm-hmm. what we need day to day. And and that's where I, you know, I heard people talking about single payer, not always calling it single payer, but talking right. about you know, right. when I when I go to the doctor and my kid's sick, I shouldn't be making a calculation about how sick is my kid versus how much money do I have. Like right. we all know that that's morally important. Like right. somebody's sick, you should go to the doctor. And I think seeing that common sense vein now run through, you know, all the way to sort of the highest profile elected officials in the country who are saying. You know, not just we should study this or that's an interesting idea, but yes, we absolutely need that. It seems like we're starting to turn a little bit on the spots where vision and boldness are able to rise from the grassroots up. Um, And I think we saw in 2016 the value of having a spokesperson or spokespeople championing issues like that and just the ability to, to kind of spread it in an exponential way. Yeah, when it gets float to that it. Yeah. 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 Right, float it nationally. And, mm-hmm. um, right, because even now, I think the effort by the GOP 
to make good on this promise they've had for seven years to dump the ACA. The process has really laid bare the emptiness of that promise. So far as we know, I mean, nobody knows what's in their plan, except, you know, for the CBO score that came out on the previous iteration. I think that it's no longer a populist idea owned exclusively by the Democrats. I think that it's likely that single payer might be more attractive, even to some folks who voted for Trump thinking he would repeal the ACA. But let's talk about Maine. It's the oldest state in the country, and the number of residents aged 65 and over is expected to double over the next two decades, meaning that 110,000 people will require aging services. So uh, I'd love for you to share what you know about the Universal Family Care Initiative launched in February and how Caring Across is involved. And Maine continues to be one of the states where there is real leadership from the grassroots and from elected officials. On thinking Except about how do you take <laughs> not all elected officials in Maine. Thank you for that caveat. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's just say that Susan Collins makes up for Governor LePage. <laughs> At least these past couple of weeks, certainly doing a good job of balancing that out. For the past couple of weeks, Governor LePage, it's a tall order to, yeah, to balance out that policy. <laughs> but it's uh, I mean, Maine in, in some ways is a should have been, I think, nationally uh, a better warning sign for yeah, what, what was happening mm-hmm. ahead of Trump. And, and I think sort of seeing one of the, the things that I often think about now and think like, how did that connect for me more clearly then? You know, Governor LePage won a three-way race the first time he was elected very narrowly and he governed for four years as a right-wing ideologue. I mean, he was he was horrible for yeah. just about everything that Caring Across believes in and cares about and that our field partners believe in and care about. And then he campaigned on those things. He didn't campaign the second time around as someone who was going to moderate his public statements. He, mm-hmm. he, went, he went right towards the personality that he had cultivated, and he expanded his margin of victory the second time that he ran. And I feel like hmm. looking back there, there were probably some transferable lessons from what was resonating from that sort of campaign and with whom it was resonating mm-hmm. uh, that we that weren't just situational to Governor LePage. But fortunately, we have other elected officials in the state, too, many of whom are doing um, outstanding quality work to fight back on the attacks launched from the administration mm-hmm. there in, in Maine and also to think about you know, Governor LePage doesn't get to be governor forever. Thank mm-hmm. goodness for term limits. And yeah. so what, direct, what direction does the state actually need to move? And carrying across alongside our partners at Maine People's Alliance uh, helped introduce a bill in the last legislative session around universal family care. And the bill is modeled off of a white paper that was released in, I believe, December of last year or January of this year that was authored by our partners at Maine People's Alliance. Okay. And the, the idea was that, of course, we have been having conversations about the need to ensure universal access to elder care and home care for a while. And Maine People's Alliance is a grassroots statewide group that works on many issues. And as they talked to people all across the state, lots of people had lots of excited responses to that proposal. And then many of them also shared back that it would be great if there was something like that for child care too, mm-hmm. because you know, doing it for, for seniors and uh, for older adults, great. And there are lots of families who are still going to be struggling to pay for some really out-of-control child care costs. And it, it got our partners thinking and it got us thinking about what would it look like to build a policy that 
beats to the care continuum and that helps families who are providing care to young children, providing care to older adults in their home, and families who need to be able to access paid leave, a place where you could do that all thinking about that same continuum or all under the same umbrella, um, and to, to fund it in a way that doesn't put extra burden on the families who already need help, mm-hmm. which is where the idea of universal family care came from in the last legislative session. And because it was a budget year in Maine, the bill didn't have much conversation in the legislature, but it's held over into the coming legislative session. So in the 2018 session, the universal family care bill will be, uh, you know, have committee hearings, there will be people testifying on it. Of course, I'll acknowledge the political reality that that something that bold is probably, bold and progressive is probably not exactly what Governor LePage might embrace. And we also know that there are going to be, like all the legislators who are running for re-election that November, are going to have constituents in their district who are going to benefit from that policy in one way or maybe in two ways. And in the early organizing efforts around universal family care, the response has been pretty tremendous. Mm-hmm. People who are able to say, that would really help me stay in the workforce and keep my job and also be able to take care of my dad. Mm-hmm. Or this speaks to the needs that I've been talking about for a long time and might allow me to be able to find child care for the days of the week that I need child care that right now is just unaffordable for my family. So, you know, whatever the politics in the governor's office are, We've also already started to hear from lots and lots of Mainers who say, like, this is the thing that I've been waiting for. And we're really looking forward to having that conversation in the coming legislative session. Mm -hmm. It's my understanding that this would be funded through a payroll tax on annual income over $118,000. First of all, I find it shocking that anyone in Maine makes over $118,000. I mean, it's tough, you know, to even make $50,000, I think, anywhere. Mm -hmm. But this would be funded by lifting the payroll tax. Earners are now taxed only up to $118,000 of their salaries. Lifting the cap would generate about $400 million dollars per year. And so this is how it would be funded through a payroll tax. How popular will this idea of lifting the payroll tax be? I mean, it seems smart, but what kind of resistance will you be getting from people who make money above $118,000? I think that we'll have, um, like with pretty much everything that we've ever done, a mixed reaction at first. Mm -hmm. I should say, you're right, that the median income in Maine is, I'm not sure where it's stacked up against other states, but I would guess it's probably in the, the bottom 15, maybe bottom 20 states. I think the median income for a family of four in the state of Maine is actually around Mm $50,000, if not a little bit lower. So while there are a number of people who, and a number of sort of high-paying jobs in the state of Maine, it is, relatively speaking, especially compared to some other states in New England, a relatively poor state, which is why our partners at Maine People's Alliance really pursued this particular method of financing the bill. I should say that when we think about this state-to-state, for carrying across, it's really important that we remain nimble and think about what makes sense given the political context and our partners' relationship. So what might work in one state might not work in another state. And I think when we talk about Hawaii, we'll be able to talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. what works there and the, the transferable lessons to other places too. But I think that there will be like there always are when a new tax is proposed. Some people who are going to pay that new tax who say, I don't want to pay that new tax. That doesn't sound fair, and I don't like taxes, and I especially don't like new ones. And I think that there will be some people, as there always are in situations like this, who say, I'm going to have to pay that, 
And that's okay. I've earned a lot of money. I'm continuing to earn relatively more money than my neighbors and the people in my state. And paying in to a social safety net is something that I feel like is part of what I do as someone who makes that amount of money. The threshold is the social security tax threshold. So if Congress were to move that threshold up or get rid of that threshold entirely at the federal level, it, it would be one of the ways that advocates have traditionally encouraged Congress to think about um, extending the long-term sustainability of Social Security and giving them the flexibility to expand benefits to people who receive Social Security. Mm -hmm. Given the current state of play in Congress, the calculus in Maine was, let's use that same threshold and say, if you're making over the threshold right now at $118,000, when you make that $119,000, like that last thousand that you made that year, you didn't pay into the Social Security trust fund on. That money was, for all intents and purposes, untaxed for the, the common good and for the social safety net. And in May, as we've talked about this and thought this over, it seems like it makes sense that a program that everyone is going to be able to access be paid for in that way so that, that hmm. money above the cap is taxed and going yeah. into a program that, that everyone's going to be able to access. Hmm. And and so, and I think that the rea I think the reception from the large number of people across the state who make under that threshold, and I'm guessing this and inferring it a little bit based on the political tenor from 2016, mm -hmm. is that that is going to feel like a pretty fair way to raise the money that they need to meet the care needs that mm -hmm. they have. I mean, there are certainly other options to think about, but. I think the other options all wind up placing an additional strain on families who are already in what Sarita Gupta, the co-director of Carrying Across, is often called the panini generation. Mm -hmm. Not just the sandwich generation, <laughs> it's the panini generation. You get pressed from both sides. Uh -huh. If you're already trying to figure out how childcare is really expensive and like, whoa, that's how much a nursing home costs for a mom, I guess she's going to stay home. If you're already doing that, adding anything extra to those families seems like uh, a short-sighted choice when there is money that right now is not being taxed for the social safety net and could go towards making sure everyone can access the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And so what is the timeline for the passage of this universal family care bill if it makes it through all the way? Well, the legislative session will begin in January, of course, in 2018. The legislature can take the bill up anytime once they get started. And okay. then when they take it up, you know, we'll be, we'll be working hard to advance the bill. And, you know, I would expect that if they're able to pass it, they're sending it to the governor's desk. It's a shorter legislative session in Maine, so probably sometime in April. And then, of course, if the Maine legislature is able to pass it, governor can sign it into law and really appeal to the, his, you know, good nature and common sense. And if he decided not to, of course, legislators would have a chance to override that veto, which has become more and more of a conversation in the state of Maine over mm -hmm. the past seven years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to unfold in that legislative session. But the one thing that feels very clear to me is that it's not just going to be a conversation between legislators and professional advocates. Of course, professional advocates are great and do a great job. And there are going to be a lot of people who would benefit from this program and who have talked about how much their family needs something like this. They are going to be in the legislature every day, you know, citizen lobbyists talking to their elected officials and telling them what they need, what they expect from them. I love it. So let's talk about Hawaii. 
When we last spoke, state legislators in Hawaii were working on a plan to support family caregivers, and just recently, very recently, the Kapuna Caregiver Assistance Act was passed. Tell us about how it works and key turning points. This was, what, the third try? Second. This this was, um, (laughs) depends on how you keep score at home, but it is the culmination of about 20 years of advocacy for a long-term care program. Yeah, this, this is this is a, a big step forward on a road that's been traveled for quite some time by quite a few people, and and it's hugely exciting to us at Carrying Across and to our partners in the state of Hawaii, and of course, how exciting to be able to go from a conversation about Maine all the way to a conversation about Hawaii, right. really spanning the really spanning the full geographic breadth of the Carrying Across field network. But mm-hmm. the program in Hawaii is the first of its kind. The, Kapuna Caregivers Program is a program that is designed to provide extra assistance to families who are family caregivers taking care of someone who needs help with at least one activity of daily living in their home and where the family caregiver is working 30 or more hours a week outside the home. And so the program is intentionally targeted at people who are faced with that really difficult decision of, do I stay in the workforce and kind of keep money coming in and keep my own retirement security and try to figure out some sort of care network for mom or dad at home? Or do I leave the workforce and take care of mom or dad full time um, and then sort of come back to this question about what I'm going to do for money and what my job prospects are months or years down the road? And in thinking about that growing group of people in Hawaii, this program is really meant to give those family caregivers the assistance they need to remain in the workforce and giving their parents and aging adults in Hawaii the sort of comfort that they're going to be able to stay where they want and receive the care that they need. Mm-hmm. And what what is actually in the bill in terms of what caregivers will get? So caregivers are eligible to receive, families are eligible to receive about $70 a day in care, which is why the program is targeted at in-home care rather than facility-based care, Uh and also why it's important to acknowledge this doesn't, of course, deal with the entirety of a family's care need, but the hope is to be able to hire a paid home care worker to come in for part of the day while family member is at work, or to think about using that money for transportation services. So maybe instead of leaving work, going home, picking mom up and driving to the doctor, you're able to use your benefit for the transportation services and you leave work and meet mom at the doctor and you have an extra hour and a half during the day that you weren't driving where you're able to be at work. So things like that that help family caregivers who are bridging the gap in so many different ways be able to do it with a little bit more flexibility um, and a little bit more of a cushion. Mm -hmm. So that's a direct payment to families. It's a payment to the people who are providing care, actually. Okay. Um, so families will utilize the existing infrastructure in Hawaii around a very similarly named but different program. So this is the Kapuna Caregivers Program. Kapuna Care in Hawaii kind of a whole infrastructure of support for aging adults in the state. Mm-hmm. And one of the thoughts behind this bill was if we can build off of that infrastructure that exists. So agencies who are already registered with the Kapuna Care Program. What we're able to do is instead of spending two years building a whole new infrastructure, we're able to streamline and move money out to families much faster. Mm -hmm. So the money will actually move through the Executive Office on Aging 
to the AAAs, the area agencies on aging, okay. and from there directly to the, the agencies who are registered with the state. Uh-huh. And what uh, is the significance of the word kapuna for folks who don't know? Oh, right. I've had, I've had the great benefit of getting to spend a lot of time in Hawaii over the past two years. The kapuna is, the, is, a, is a Hawaiian word for elder or older adult. Okay. And Kevin, is this one also being funded through a payroll tax? It's not. So this particular program is funded through the general fund in okay. Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So no new revenue raised for this piece of legislation, which I, I think is important to note. Hawaii's legislature is in the middle of some really difficult decisions around a rail program that was approved a couple of years ago. And like with, I think, most major transportation issues, has hit some funding challenges and some timeline challenges. And so this past legislative session, the idea of moving forward a proposal that was going to require more revenue from outside of the general fund at a time when the legislature was already thinking about that as a possibility to fund the rail program Mm -hmm. didn't feel like the most strategic push. And so the opportunity that existed to use money from within the general fund and to talk about priorities which is really what the conversation mm-hmm. came down to. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's, there's existing money here. Could Hawaii become the first state to really say, of course we're pinched. And we also know that by 2030, one in four people in Hawaii are going to be over the age of 65. So mm-hmm. can the state also look at that and say, okay, we've got to start to prioritize programs that address that changing demographic and make life easier for family caregivers and the people who are receiving care. Um, so it really came down to a question of priorities and, and really came down to a number of campaign factors that feel like lots of good lessons in there and also just felt like such a, a fun campaign to be a part of, mm-hmm. but couldn't have been done without legislative champions, sponsors who've worked on this issue for a number of years, as well as legislators who kind of really got into it for the first time this session and learned not just about the numbers, which are important, but not always that compelling, but just reading the stories of people who sent in testimony about how this would help their family mm-hmm. and hearing from constituents who would you know, come to, come to lobby days and meetings with legislators and talk about what this would have been like, how helpful it would have been while mom was getting older in their home or how they see their neighbors struggling or what they hear about every Sunday at church, mm-hmm. to the, the stories that people shared, very concrete, very real, very tough to hear. Um, and the number of times that after hearing those stories, legislators shared their story hmm. right back of what care looked like in their family, it felt like such a different connecting point in a yeah. way that I've never experienced on any other issue. And I think that that really moved a lot of legislators to see themselves in the cause that members were bringing to their office and to decide, I'm going to get this done. I've got a lot of other stuff I've got to do. This is a tough legislative session, and I'm really committed to getting this done. I think that changed a lot of the conversation this year. Yeah, it seems like it would. I mean, the reality is, is that caregiving is a nonpartisan issue. And 
when you approach a public official about this, you know, the conversation should start with, here's what it looks like in my family. What does it look like in yours? I mean, just to break through that gobbledygook and policy speak is so important to humanize this subject. It's a strategy, I think, that is Mm -hmm. worth employing widely. And it also reminds me of the fact that citizens have power. And also, you know, the examples of Hawaii and Maine really prove the point that states are driving innovation, not Congress. The last time we spoke, South Carolina and Oregon had taken steps to improve long-term care. Colorado and Washington State were studying long-term care options. Are there any updates in these states or elsewhere that you can share? Washington State is continuing to move forward with their legislature on a universal or close to universal benefit around long-term care, sort of similar to what we're talking about in Maine. Their bill is at the end of, I believe, a 18-month or two-year process following a study bill that they did. So the legislature passed funding for a study bill, which came back and dictated the need for this program. So I believe in the coming legislative session in 2018, they'll be coming back to take up the actual bill that was developed in this past session Mm -hmm. um, that will be funded, I believe, well, a number of different funding mechanisms were on the table. I believe that the conversation was revolving around a payroll tax. But again, like in all states, I think they are trying to match up what's the right revenue mechanism with the need in that state. But the conversation in Washington, Washington State, is moving much more quickly than the conversation here (laughs) in Washington, D.C. The other place where there's been really exciting movement, there are a number of states across the country, I, I shouldn't say the other, but the place that jumps immediately to the front of my mind is Michigan, where working with our partners at Michigan United, they have partnered with legislators there to introduce a study bill around long term care which when I say a study bill around long-term care, I can hear people nodding off and putting their heads down on their (laughs) pillows. But I actually think, let me see if I can convince you, I actually think that a study bill on long-term care is super exciting. (laughs) And one of the reasons I think it's super exciting is back to my comment about the motion to proceed. It is really hard and it should be really hard to do anything or go anyplace unless we have an idea of what we're doing and where we're going. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of states, in a lot of places, the data around what's the need for care is patchwork and incomplete. I mean, we can take anecdotal evidence to legislators all day long. And unless we're also able to couple that with some hard data. I think that it's always going to be impossible when we get to the point in the conversation about how much this costs to move most legislators on the, yes, I should do this question. And so the the study bill is really a way to say, let's figure out what the state of play is here on care, on aging, long-term care. And let's look at what some of the options would be to meet the need. And let's lay those options out in not just here's the one proposal that we have, But here are a number of things that a legislative body could consider if they wanted to move forward on that. Mm -hmm. And the study bill in Michigan right now has, I think, more than 30 co-sponsors on it, um, many of whom are Republican. Mm -hmm. It's like a true bipartisan bill, which it should be. It doesn't need to be relegated to one side of the aisle or the other. I think you, know, you can probably hear it in my voice. I am really excited and compelled by what's happening there mm-hmm. because I think it's a recognition of legislators looking out and saying, I'm hearing about this in all sorts of different ways. We need to figure out what's happening and what our options are. I don't think all of those co-sponsors are going to line up behind the exact same options. Right. But that's okay. That's just fine. I, and I think that the 
opportunity to talk with members and constituents, people from various communities across the state while that study bill conversation is advancing is a way for legislators to also make sure that they're hearing how do these things play out in community. Mm -hmm. In addition to an actuarial analysis, like, okay, so what do you do when the car that you drive to work and that you drive mom to her doctor's appointments breaks down and you've got to make a choice between those two. Like to hear those sorts of things that we hear at Caring Across for members all the time. Right. For legislators to hear those things alongside the data, I think it's all about building towards that point where you can't do nothing. You've got to respond to the moment and take a step forward. And it's also a great place to start in terms of tackling a huge issue in baby steps. But I think for a lot of people, a lot of legislators, these issues are so overwhelming that it's easier to ignore it than it is to sort of start somewhere. And I think this is really smart to put it in context that's digestible and it doesn't threaten anyone. It just says, here's what it looks like. That sounds really exciting. Wow. That's two of us who think a study bill is exciting. That's great. We got to find, <laughs> we gotta find more people out We're there. We're a little wonkier I, than most people. We, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but and, it's and a I, good start. It's a good start. It's good for people to know it, that this is happening in a logical way, too, I think. I don't know. It, it is. And it gives us a chance in states to be in closer partnership and relationship with groups who've been working on long-term care far longer than Carrie Across has. We're a six, seven-year-old campaign. Our partners in many states have only been working on these issues for a couple of years. So groups on the ground who've been advocating around these issues for decades, it gives us a chance to work alongside them and support the work that they're doing mm-hmm. and also hopefully bring some new energy and ideas to the fight. Right, too. which you um, need. Yeah, things like study bills are a great way to sort of build new relationships and alliances and have people call and say, I didn't know you were working on that, or I'm so excited you're working on that. And it led to good meetings and the potential for lots of strong collaboration moving forward, too. Mm-hmm. Selfishly, I'd like to know if there's anything going on in Florida, my home state, which is a I, real uphill I, battle here. If it makes you feel any better, I'm actually from Ohio, where it's also a big uphill battle. Um, and I will say, I'm sure that there's lots of good stuff happening in Florida. It's not a spot where carry across generations is working on the ground with any groups. But that I know, was my question, course, really. Lot, yeah, we don't have a field partner there, but I okay. know that a lot of our sort of national partners are, of course, engaged in all sorts of issue and electoral work there. I'm surprised you don't like have a field partner thing. here. This is like senior central, and it's a I, microcosm of the rest of the nation, really. I mean, not that Maine isn't, I, but, you know. Oh, I know. It feels like a spot when we think about where we, where we want to expand, which is, of course, like always for us, like, a question of resources and being able to make sure that when we expand, we're able to do so in a way that really supports the places where we're trying to work. That Florida is always close to the top of the list when we think about, you know, where do we need to be and where do we want to be? Well, I'm going to turn appropriately, since you're in D.C., I'm going to call it a pivot. Um, Okay. I'm going to ask how your gammy is doing, your grandmother. Remember when we last talked, she had just moved from her home in Jupiter, Florida, to an assisted living facility, and I wanted to know how she's doing, and I hope she's still among us. That is so kind of you to ask. Man, I um, thank you. She's doing great. Doing really great. There was, I think, as we've all had when family members made a transition like that or a pivot like that in their life, there was an adjustment period. It was really hard at first yeah. for her really hard on on everybody else and yeah my my 
dad was able to visit her about a month ago and sent around some photos to the rest of the family of them out at lunch. And like, she's doing great, gets visitors all the time, is like still a decent correspondent. Um, Wow, and how old is she? she is, she Gammy's 90 this uh-huh, year. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. My favorite part is that Gammy, while always happy to write back to a letter, not that great at remembering to check the mail. Um, so what I, what I, what I realized, and I didn't, I didn't sort of get this uh, at the new facility as I sent what I thought was a very thoughtful Valentine's Day card and some, you know, really nice arrangement of flowers down to the front desk. Mm-hmm. But it turns out here, you got to go down and ask for it or it's not coming to your room. And I learned this much later when my dad visited and found the Valentine's Day card and the St. Patrick's Patrick's Day card (laughs) um, and the two other letters that I sent. So lots of mail stacked up for Gammy on mail day when my dad was there, but (laughs) she got to read all of it and she sent a nice note back. I I really do appreciate your asking. Yeah, she's doing great. Yeah, it's an extra fee to have the mail delivered, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I asked my dad if the flowers were still there, and he said the flowers that you sent in February are no longer sitting at the front desk for your game. Now <laughs> you know at better. The front right, desk. okay, I'll do better. Wow. Her, her level of care doesn't include flower <laughs> delivery. <laughs> now, now, now I know to include the room number and a special little note when I place that order from a distance. That's so funny. <laughs> Kevin, how do you maintain your fighting spirit, given that you're always playing a long game? Well, personally, I'm just, I am, you know, I don't want to overuse the word inspired, but I truly am, like, inspired and moved by the work that's happening since Election Day across the country. You know, I, I was struck when I was thinking about this by, you know, the one big parallel between the resistance movement and caregiving, which is that both of these are, are places where, like, the opposition and the caring majority are, are largely led by women, especially working class women and women of color. And just thinking about the energy that's out there right now to not just fight back against what feels like a pretty vicious series of attacks, but to also demand something better. To be in community with a movement like that and, and to be a part of something so powerful, that's lots of energy and lots of wind in the sails, even on the days where it feels like, wow, we're still trying to convince people of some things that feel really basic to you and to me. On moments like that, sort of knowing who I work alongside and all the work that's happened before to get us here, mm-hmm. it feels like there's not much to do besides put one foot in front of the other and keep going. What do you do to detach and have fun? If you can detach, it's probably pretty hard. I am not the world's greatest detacher, and I'm sure <laughs> if people who know me are listening, they, they probably just turned this off to be like, what is it he does? I, I feel very fortunate, to be honest, to do work that I really care about um, and to get a chance every day to show up for a job that, that means a lot to me. And I realize that that's a real privilege that most people don't necessarily have. But, you know, I live in Maine and we get a very small window for summer. So I am at the end of this week going to get a chance to go outside and hike around a little bit and see an area of the state called the Bold Coast, Hmm. which supposedly has some of the best views and nicest coastline in the entire country. So there will be about nine hours or so when I don't have cell phone service. Oh, okay. I'll be quite detached for that day or half a day at least. And I try to sprinkle little things like that in between all the work that I feel really lucky to get to do. That's cool. Well, what sort of action can people take in terms of connecting with your organization? 
best way to do it is to visit our website, which is caringacross.org. And if you visit our recently revamped and nice and spiffy website. I um, It's super cool. That, yeah, it, big leap forward. So if you visit the website and sign up for our email list, it's the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing. Promise we won't email you all the time, but we will give you lots of chances to take action. And if you'd rather connect with us on social media, if you visit the website, um, you can find links to our Facebook and to our Twitter. Um, and of course, on Facebook, we're Caring Across Generations, if you want to find us and follow the page there, too. Okay, sounds great. I want to ask if you have any last thoughts to share with the listeners before we go. I think you know, I would just come back to the one that we talked a little bit about before, which is just the moment right now for people to not just talk about what they don't want, but to talk about a vision for, for what they need and what they believe in. I think pushing ourselves to recognize that care isn't just personal, but it's political, and pushing people who are thinking about running for office and people who are currently in office to understand that same thing is an important piece of the work that we have to do. Mm -hmm. And that when we talk about the need for a bold vision for politics, whatever we each think that is, that we really push ourselves to always include care in that vision and that we push the people who want to represent us to also include care in that vision, too. Mm -hmm. You must be feeling pretty good about your senator right about now, Susan Collins. I am really glad that Senator Collins has taken the stance that she has, and I feel especially proud and thankful for the hundreds and hundreds of community members, activists, and leaders across the state who immediately after Election Day began holding public meetings, demonstrations, town halls, events, to really demand this from Senator Collins. Yeah. And of course, Senator Collins is, is a leader and, and came to this decision, I'm sure, by talking to lots of people. But, I, you know, it's certainly not inconsequential, the number of people who, re you know, really asking for and demanding that Senator Collins stand with us right. um, and not with the Republican majority in the Senate. So credit on both sides. Kevin Simowitz, he's the political director of Carrying Across Generations. You can find out more about this terrific organization by going to carryingacross.org. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show again, and I'm looking forward to catching up with you maybe in another year. <laughs> maybe sooner. I, I was going to say, yeah, thank you again for having me back. I'd love to chat whenever it's convenient for you, and I'm going to tell my Gandhi she got some time on a podcast today, and then, you know, explain what a podcast is to her. So I've got a full afternoon in front of me. Yeah, make sure you call or don't send a letter. <laughs> Janet, thanks again. This was so fun. Thank you, too. Take care. Bye, Kevin. Okay, bye. Bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.